0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President,
1: Tony Perkins.
2: Good evening and welcome to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm. I'm a senior fellow for Biblical Worldview and Strategic Engagement at Family Research Council. It is my pleasure to be with you and sitting in for Tony today as he enjoys some much-deserved time away with his family. I hope you have had a great time recovering uh, from what I hope was a great time with your family as we celebrated independence for America. Despite our many challenges, and there are many, no group of people has ever had it better than we do, which means we have a lot to be grateful for. But the reason we have so much to be grateful for is because of the men and women who pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to free us from those who would rule us without our consent. And of course, the very best way for us to show our gratitude is to pay it forward and do everything we can to make sure those who come after us experience the same blessing. And of course, our celebration of independence is the perfect time to do that. Today on the program, we'll cover some of the news that happened while we were celebrating. A federal judge issued an injunction prohibiting the federal government from coordinating with social media companies. Is this necessary to protect free speech? Or is it a threat to free speech? We'll talk about it. Also, last Friday, the State Department released their report on the withdrawal from Afghanistan, and it wasn't entirely positive. We're going to talk about that report and what it means coming up. In addition, end of last week was a big news for the Supreme Court, and they issued a decisive victory for free speech in the case of 303 Creative versus Ellenus, in which they ruled that a web page designer cannot be required to communicate messages she does not believe in. Now, as you would expect, the left is not happy, but their response to the ruling has been somewhat surprising, and we'll tell you what that response has been. In addition, we're going to have a great conversation with Oz Guinness about, among other things, what is freedom? Stay tuned for that. But first, our headline for today. A federal judge yesterday on the 4th of July temporarily blocked the Biden administration agencies and officials from meeting with tech companies, including Twitter, Meta, and Google, about social media censorship. This temporary injunction came in response to lawsuits from attorneys general in Louisiana and Missouri, whose filings described the actions of the Biden administration as, quote, the most egregious violations of the First Amendment in the history of the United States of America, end quote. Joining me now to discuss it is one of the attorney generals who filed that lawsuit, the Missouri Attorney General, Andrew Bailey. General Bailey, welcome back to Washington Watch.
0: Thank you for having me on.
2: Now, we're glad to have you. The first thing I want to do is uh, get you to describe one of these. uh, It's provocative, but it's significant. One of the things that you say in your filings is that the Biden administration has been engaged in the most egregious violations of the First Amendment in the history of the United States. What do you mean by that?
0: Well, what I mean is that we've uncovered, and we've only begun to scratch the surface, but already we've uncovered a vast censorship enterprise emanating from the very top levels of the White House, implicating potentially the president himself and expanding over a spectrum of unelected federal bureaucratic agencies. It's a relationship of both coercion and collusion with woke big tech social media corporations to silence Americans' free speech and violation of the First Amendment. And lo and behold, the only speech they're silencing is conservative voices. And so this is scary stuff. The court has described it as a dystopian scenario orwellian in nature in, in court uh our motion back on may 26th the judge asked the uh, attorneys from the department of justice that they had read george orwell's novel 1984 and were familiar with it because in his uh ruling that was handed down yesterday he described the uh the censorship effort as almost like uh, the ministry of T- truth from oceana in the george orwell novel and so this is scary stuff again we're fighting to protect Americans and Missourians' First Amendment right to free speech. There's a reason that the right to free speech, free religious exercise, and freedom of the press are all in the very First Amendment to the United States Constitution, and it's because the founders understood that the rights of conscience were were given to us by God, not man, and that the structure of the Constitution was intended to protect those rights that we cherish from the government. And in this instance, the government is the most blatant violator of those rights by censoring Speech on big tech social media platforms. So we're going to continue to fight. Uh, let freedom ring, and what a great way to celebrate the Fourth than by re- obtaining this preliminary injunction to protect our First Amendment rights under the Constitution.
2: Now, you re- you referred to there one of the thing the claims the judge made in his statement was that. The government would claim to be interested in stopping misinformation, but what the judge decided is that they were really primarily interested in stopping political speech that they didn't like. Do you have any examples of how that was working?
0: Yeah. Look, this was never about truth. It was always about power. And so what we see is that basically if the federal government and if Joe Biden or Dr. Anthony Fauci or anyone else that's involved in the censorship enterprise decides that uh, a speaker is is saying something that is mis, dis or mal information that the federal government then has the authority to squelch that speech, silence that speech, stifle that speech on big tech social media platforms. And again, this is a scary world because the people should determine what is and isn't is and is not true based on free, fair, and open debate, not government officials deciding what we should and shouldn't be talking about. One of the best examples I have is in a series of emails between March and May of 2021 between White House Digital Strategy Director Rob Flaherty and cronies in big tech social media corporations where he specifically targets, the White House targets anyone whose speech involves Vaccine hesitancy or mask, uh, you know, questioning whether masks are effective in in uh, combating the the pandemic. He specifically targets a Tommy Lahren video, a Tucker Carlson video and demands those be taken down. And big tech social media comes back and says, well, hold on a second. None of this speech violates our terms and conditions. The White House says we don't care. Go further than your terms and conditions or your uh, user agreements. And specifically says that the request is coming from the highest and he emphasizes very highest levels of the White House, thereby implicating the president himself.
2: General Bailey, we do now have the benefit of hindsight. And it turns out that much of the information that the federal government was telling people to amplify was false. And much of the information that they were telling social media companies to suppress, turns out that was true. Was that relevant to the judge's decision in this case?
0: Well, I think that uh, it it could be, but at the end of the day, I mean, certainly it's it's relevant to uh, your your viewers and relevant to the rest of us who, who pay attention to this. But as far as the law is concerned, the government has no business telling people what they should and shouldn't talk about. It's up to us to determine what is or isn't true. The remedy for disfavored speech in this nation has always been counter speech, not government censorship. So if President Biden doesn't like what we're saying on big tech social media platforms, he can take to those platforms and counter our speech with his own speech. But what he can't do is silence us and stifle our voices it not only hurts the speaker but it hurts the potential listeners
2: right so i want to get into this ruling from the judge it was an injunction uh temporary injunction what exactly is the implication of this uh, ruling for now
0: well we're starting to erect a wall of separation between tech and and state to protect our First Amendment right to free speech. The first brick was laid yesterday. Again, we've only begun to scratch the surface to uncover this vast censorship enterprise in the federal government operated from the White House. We're going to continue to uh, leave no stone unturned as we root out the vast censorship enterprise. We're moving from preliminary stages where we've obtained a preliminary injunction into the merits discovery. We're going to do additional depositions, receive additional documents and continue to monitor the situation, drive forward to make sure we put a stop to it. What we know is that the, the censorship started with speech related to covid and the hunter biden laptop story but we have every reason to believe that that censorship enterprise is now mushroomed and expanded and is covering other topics that the government disagrees with so for instance they can shut down speech related to uh, questioning transgender issues questioning global warming or abortion and so if if we've got to keep fighting to protect our constitutional rights and we what we can't have is a public marketplace of ideas inhibited by the federal government
2: Now, General Bailey, what is your response to the idea? And we hear this argument a lot that, well, the social media is based social media is a a wild, wild west. There's no rules and regulations. There's all sorts of lies being spread. And unless the federal government is there to protect us from misinformation, it will run rampant and we will all be deceived and our democracy will fall apart. What's your response to that?
0: Well, I think that's exactly the kind of Orwellian nanny state that the judge is concerned about and is warning us against. I mean, again, the whole idea of the First Amendment is to invite dissent and invite discussion so that the people can determine what they do and don't believe based on free, fair and open debate. It's not for government officials to determine what we should and shouldn't believe. We get to make those decisions for ourselves. And that's why we have the Constitution to protect us from government indoctrination and government control, of both our thoughts, our speech and what we're hearing.
2: Now, you've done a lot of research into this relationship between the federal government and social media companies. Based on your research, have you found that social media companies are generally hesitant to cooperate with requests from the federal government, or are they uh, excited to do so?
0: No, I think they're more than willing to go in lockstep with uh, the Biden administration on this issue. I mean, look, think of it this way. If you were talking on a cell phone and you started talking about things a cell phone company didn't like and the cell phone muted you. That would be censorship at the big tech social media level. But what I'm talking about is way worse because the censorship is occurring at the behest of the federal government. But we know that when Joe Biden threatened from the campaign trail and then from the White House podium to repeal Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, if— Big tech social media didn't enhance and, and more aggressively censor Americans' free speech. They were more than happy to do so. Look, it's not a coincidence that the only speech censored are conservative voices. It's because they want to put their thumb on the scale uh, ideologically. But that's the, exactly the kind of core political speech that the First Amendment was intended to protect.
2: Have, have you gotten any response from the White House yet?
0: Well, I think that they're evaluating the situation. I'm sure they're going to continue to fight. We also know that they've uh, likely uh, transferred a lot of the authority over the censorship enterprise out of the federal government into a quasi-public entity known as the Election Integrity Program. And we know that because individuals who worked at the nerve center uh, of the federal censorship program in the government then move to the EIP. And so we have every reason to believe that it's growing, that they're they're transferring it out of the federal government and still controlling it through a third party, which is also illegal. The government can't do indirectly what it would be prohibited from doing directly. But that's almost a sign of consciousness of guilt that they knew they were running up against the First Amendment and needed to avoid that kind of uh, controversy. But we've got them on the hook now where we're gonna continue to push the case forward and continue to unravel this and unwind it and hold wrongdoers accountable.
2: General Bailey, is it your position that social media companies should allow absolutely anything that someone wants to say on their platform or is it merely that the federal government shouldn't be involved in that decision?
0: The federal government shouldn't be telling us what we should and shouldn't say. That's the problem here. This is about the federal government censoring Americans free speech on big tech social media platforms. I think consumers have a right to know what isn't isn't being censored at the uh, you know in the free and open marketplace of ideas it should be uninhibited from government intrusion.
2: Now, we've got about a minute left. Tell us what the future holds for this case. We know this is a temporary injunction. What does that mean uh, for your likelihood to succeed in the future?
0: Well, the judge has said that he, uh, based on the substantial evidence put forward, he believes we're likely to succeed on the merits of in establishing a First Amendment violation. We know that on May 26, when the Department of Justice showed up to court to argue in favor of a motion to dismiss and against our motion for preliminary injunction, the Department of Justice wouldn't commit to protecting the First Amendment going forward when the court asked them, would it be a violation of the First Amendment for the federal government to silence any American citizen who questioned election integrity, they said, well, it depends. This is an unrepentant Department of Justice who's more than willing to violate the First Amendment rather than protect our First Amendment rights. And that's why it's important to drive this lawsuit forward, continue to root out this vast censorship enterprise, and restore the First Amendment right to free speech for all Americans.
2: Now, the law doesn't care about public opinion, but do you have a sense about how Americans feel about this issue in about 30 seconds?
0: Well, I think Americans love our right to free speech. We love free, fair, and open debate. We love being able to see and hear what we please. Absent government censorship, that's been a founding principle. Certainly the founders understood that right comes from God, not man. And again, we want to be protected from the government intrusion into that marketplace of ideas. We want the dissent and the discussion. And I think Americans approve of the Constitution and our constitutional rights.
2: I think you're right about that. Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey, thank you for being with us and thank you for your, your advocacy on behalf of free speech for all of us. Thanks for your time.
0: Thanks for having me on.
2: Coming up next, shocking details from the State Department's inquiring about the chaotic Afghanistan withdrawal. We'll talk about it when we come back. Stay with us here on Washington Watch. Everything we do begins as an idea. Before there can be acts of courage, there must be the belief that some things are worth sacrificing for. Before there can be marriage, there is the idea that man should not be alone. Before there was freedom, there was the idea that individuals are created equal. It's true that all ideas have consequences, but we're less aware that all consequences are the fruit of ideas. Before there was murder, there was hate. Before there was a Holocaust, There was the belief by some people that other people are undesirable. Our beliefs determine our behavior, and our beliefs about life's biggest questions determine our worldview. Where did I come from? Who decides what is right and wrong? What happens when I die? Our answers to these questions explain why people see the world so differently. Debates about abortion are really disagreements about where life gets its value. Debates over sexuality and gender and marriage are really disagreements about whether the rules are made by us or for us. What we think of as political debates are often much more than that. They're disagreements about the purpose of our lives and the source of truth. As Christians, our goal must be to think biblically about everything. Our goal is to help you see beyond red and blue, left and right, to see the battle of ideas at the root of it all. Our goal is to equip Christians with a biblical worldview and help them advance and defend the faith in their families, communities, and the public square. Cultural renewal doesn't begin with campaigns and elections. It begins with individuals turning from lies to truth. But that won't happen if people can't recognize a lie and don't believe truth exists. We want to help you see the spiritual war behind the political war, the truth claims behind the press release, and the forest and the tree. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. Many blamed the Biden administration for the botched and chaotic military withdrawal from Afghanistan, in which 13 military members were killed. Now, a scathing report from the State Department, conveniently dropped Friday afternoon just before the 4th of July holiday weekend, backs that assessment. Now, according to the report, the Biden administration provided insufficient senior level consideration of worst case scenarios and how quickly those might follow. But President Biden has been consistently maintaining that no mistakes were made in the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Will this latest report require the Biden administration to admit mistakes or will the timing of the report Coming as it did on a Friday afternoon, as much of the official Washington press corps was preparing for a holiday, well, it helped them bury the story. Joining me to discuss it now is Congressman Rich McCormick. He serves on the House Armed Services Committee, the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology. He represents the 6th Congressional District of Georgia. Congressman McCormick, welcome back to Washington Watch.
3: Thanks. Good to be with you.
2: Now, first, I'd like to hear your response to uh, what President Biden has said very consistently in the last, even last week, that no mistakes were made in the withdrawal from Afghanistan.
3: Well, that's ridiculous. Anybody who saw the fact that we lost more lives in one day than we lost in the last 10 years, uh, that we lost control of a country that was stabilized, uh, that we, after a $2 trillion investment with 20 years, with 2,000, uh, I believe 2,461 lives lost, um, with li- brain injuries and uh, limbs lost, times we spent away from our, our families, uh, months and years at a time, to lose control of a country. And literally half the population is now in subjugate slavery. They have 27 terror cells training there. Uh, to say that that's not a botched withdrawal is literally a slap in the face of everybody who served there.
2: Now, according to this report, again, released on Friday, just before the 4th of July, it said that there was, quote, insufficient senior level consideration of worst case scenarios. What do you take that to mean?
3: Uh, we already knew there were a lot of bad things happening there. There was dissenting opinions from some of the leaders there that were ignored. Uh, they they didn't take into account the bad things that were already taken care. We had really good intel from all over the nation that that As soon as you start telling the bad guys that we're leaving, uh, the peripheral police stations and stuff like that, they don't want to die. They're just trying to survive to the next generation. Uh, The fact that Biden said, hey, look, we're not going to stand up for them if they're not going to stand up for themselves. Well, come on. Who's been absorbing the brunt of these forces for the last decade? You've had tens of thousands of Afghanis die in defense of their country, patriots, people who would die for their country willingly if they thought it would make a difference. But once they no longer have the backing of the United States and they knew they were in trouble, then they're just going to hand over the keys to the Taliban and say, here, just don't kill us. Leave my family alone. And that's exactly what happened. We didn't prepare for that. We gave them the keys without even blinking an eye. Uh, we left behind almost $90 billion worth uh, of uh, military assets uh, that can now y- be used against us in the future.
2: Now, if there was, in fact, insufficient senior-level uh consideration of worst case scenarios, what do you think now, and we've had a lot of time to kind of reflect on this, hear from the Biden administration, let them explain their rationale. Why do you think the decisions that were made at the time were way in the, were made in the way
3: they were? Because the president wanted to have a fit report, to put it in military terms, he wanted to be the president that got us out of Afghanistan. Well, congratulations, you did it, and in the worst possible way. Uh, I remember when Obama talked about getting out of Cuba, and he said, Oh, we're going to, that was a presidential promise he made during his campaign. But once he started getting briefed up on it, realized that's a bad idea, having a strategic loss of a very important position uh, just for the sake of saying, I got us out of Cuba, didn't make sense. So we're still in Cuba because it makes sense to be in Cuba. It makes sense we should still be in Afghanistan. I know people didn't like it. They thought, oh, we shouldn't be in a quagmire. We are all over the world right now. We're still in Spain. We never even fought a war in Spain. We have more people in Spain than we had when we had uh, troops in Afghanistan in 2016, even when we started our withdrawal. Uh, We still have people in Germany, Korea, Japan, Italy, all over Africa. This is strategically placed troops to keep bad people from coming to America and doing bad things to Americans. Now,
2: this report I mentioned a couple of times was released Friday before the 4th of July. So big holiday weekend, a lot of people not paying attention to the news. That's when you typically dump news that you don't want anyone to know about. Do you think the timing of the release itself is an admission that the Biden administration, despite what we hear sometimes from Kareem Jean-Pierre and President Biden, really isn't proud of the way that went?
3: News cycles matter, and of course it matters when they released it. Not only did they pick a Friday, uh, but they also picked the Friday before the 4th of July weekend. Uh, they meant to do this. They wanted to get buried, and the media, of course, is always happy to comply with that when it has to do with liberals and, and covering up their mistakes. Uh, this is just another example of the biased media system, and and if they have nothing to cover up, if they were try- trying to be totally transparent, they just be honest. They really messed this up.
2: Now, Congressman, what do you think accountability looks like in this case?
3: Well, first of all, they have to answer for what they did wrong. Uh, I, this is one of the things that we talked about in our hearing. The Foreign Affairs Committee had multiple hearings on this. And if you go back and review the testimonies, uh, both on soldiers and sailors that served over there, of the Afghani uh, refugees, of the people who deserted, uh, quite frankly, people who put their lives on the line to help us in these efforts— that we just left behind and, and didn't do anything for, uh, the fact that we had to send over mercenaries to actually do the job of the military that we uh, give very good resources to, very good intel for, um, we still have an accountability problem for what we did wrong, but also for what we have not yet accomplished. Uh, if we can't, acknowledge what we did wrong there's no healing process we it was funny the one bipartisan thing we had of the hearings is like we have to learn from our mistakes Well, you can't learn from your mistakes if you don't admit to anything wrong there was a ton of things we did wrong you can even talk about the start of the war but that's really here neither here nor there you have to admit what we did on the withdrawal which really cost us not only american lives but also cost us an amazing amount of prestige around the world Congressman, final
2: question. In about 30 seconds, there are a lot of critics who say that the Afghanistan withdrawal was one of the things that encouraged Putin to invade Ukraine. Are you one of those?
3: I absolutely believe that it was uh, uh, instrumental. When you show weak leadership, when you show no commitment to your obligations, when it shows poor leadership, when it shows you as a weak nation not willing to stand up for what's right, of course it's gonna embolden people like Putin, especially when you're a dictator who wants to expand your borders and do the wrong thing. Uh, When you don't think that the leadership has any backbone and that they're gonna be ineffective, of course it's gonna uh, affect the decisions of bad players around the world.
2: Congressman Rich McCormick, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much. Coming up, a good Supreme Court decision led to a chorus of lies from the left. We'll talk about it when we come back.
4: All of us are born with the desire to find truth and meaning. Where did I come from? What happens when I die? While our answers to these questions may divide us, we are united in our need for the freedom to answer life's biggest questions and make life's biggest decisions for ourselves. That's why religious freedom matters for everyone. Religious freedom matters because the powerful have long wanted to control those who are less powerful. Religious freedom matters because the freedom of those who are different is often threatened by those who believe different is dangerous. Leah Cherubu, a Christian teenager in Nigeria, remains a captive of Boko Haram for her refusal to renounce her Christian faith. Chinese pastor Wang Yi is serving a nine-year sentence for speaking publicly against the Chinese government. In Pakistan, Asif Purvaez is on death row for allegedly sending a blasphemous text message. All of this because people in power decided different is dangerous. at the Center for Religious Liberty at Family Research Council. We promote religious freedom for everyone because the only alternative is religious freedom for no one. We encourage Americans and the American government to engage and advocate for the persecuted, and they do. We work every day to bring good news to the afflicted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. We do it because that's what Jesus does. We work to give freedom to others because we ourselves have been set free.
2: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. As we covered last Friday on Washington Watch, the Supreme Court issued a historic decision protecting both freedom of speech and religious liberty last week in 303 Creative v. LNS, which said a Christian web designer is not compelled to create websites celebrating same-sex marriages. Since then, the left has had some interesting things to say about the case, including this statement from Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg.
0: I think it's very revealing that there's no evidence that this web designer was ever even approached by anyone asking uh, for a website for a same-sex wedding. Matter of fact, it appears this web designer only went into the wedding business for the purpose of, of provoking a case like this.
2: Echoing the same narrative, the website Colorado Newsline, the state from which this case originated, ran a story with the headline, A Fake Case With Real Consequences is this in fact a fake case? Joining me now to tell us is Jonathan Scruggs. He's the Senior Counsel and Vice President of Litigation Strategy at the Alliance Defending Freedom, which brought this case on behalf of 303 Creative. Jonathan, welcome back to Washington Watch.
5: Yeah, thanks so much for having me back.
2: Well, let's get to the bottom line. Is this a fake case or not?
5: Uh, This case is real. Our client is real. And thankfully, the Supreme Court decision is real. And it just protected... Countless of Americans from the government compelling them to say something they don't believe, and that's the bottom line. And it, it's a great day for the First Amendment. It's a great day for free speech. And no matter how hard people try to undermine it, undermine the legitimacy of this case, undermine the legitimacy of our our court system, the facts are the facts. And the and the facts are that Lori Smith wanted to go, is in business, wants to go and create speech that's consistent with her beliefs, and the state of Colorado. Uh, said they would punish her for doing so. So you can't get more real than what we presented uh, and what has happened.
2: Jonathan, why do you think there has been this attempt to claim that this was basically fraud? It was all made up. This wasn't even a controversy. Where is that coming from?
5: Uh, it's really all baseless. Uh, it's coming from the fact that uh, Lori, our client, Lori Smith, who owns 303 Creative, received a request through an intake form uh, from someone who said they were Mike and Stuart, and they wanted a wedding website to celebrate their same-sex wedding. Uh, It it turns out we don't know. Lori couldn't reach out to this person and verify that what they were saying is true, because if she did so, she would violate the law. That's the whole purpose of this lawsuit, is to gain clarity before she would have to violate the law. But like I said, Lori's been in business for numerous years. It's undisputed that she wanted to uh, expand her business into wedding websites, and that Colorado said again and again in court that if she did so, she would violate the law. And let's not remember that Colorado has been applying this law to other people like Lori Smith, including Jack Phillips of Masterpiece Cake Shop. So there's really no debate here about what the law means and what Colorado wanted to do and that whether, whether Lori has a First Amendment right to do it.
2: Well, not only are critics claiming that this is a fake case, the New York Times ran a piece claiming in the title that the Supreme Court has opened the door to discrimination. In addition, Pete Buttigieg, who we heard from at the beginning of the segment, he said that the case is designed to chip away at rights. Let's play clip five.
0: I think what's really revealing is that there's no evidence that this web designer was ever even approached by a same-sex couple looking for services to support their wedding. So you're seeing more and more of these cases and these circumstances that uh, are designed to get people spun up Mm -hmm. and designed to chip away at rights. Jonathan
2: Scruggs, what's your response to the idea that this case is designed actually to chip away at people's
5: fundamental rights? That's absolutely false. Uh, The case and the Supreme Court decision were clear that this protects the rights of all Americans to speak consistent with their beliefs. Uh, The ruling did not in any way imperil these laws and does not prevent these laws from being applied uh, to protect people's access to goods and services. It just means the government can't force someone to say something that violates their core convictions. And that protects not only Lori Smith, our client. It protects the LGBT web designer. It protects the atheist. It protects the Muslim. It protects the Jewish artist. It protects all of us, and that is great news. So this misinformation campaign that's going on is really an effort to blur what the court actually said. Just go and read the court's opinion and see for yourself. And what the court said clearly again and again is that free speech is our fundamental right. It's an inalienable right of all Americans, and that's what the Supreme Court decision stood up and protected
2: I think you're correct that there has been within the uh, media sphere an attempt to misrepresent the facts, but it's not just in the media. If you read Justice Sotomayor's dissent, she seems to badly misrepresent the actual facts of this case. Why do you think it is hard for some on the left to just accurately talk about what happened and and what what this case allows and what it doesn't allow?
5: Well, I think the other side has just been really drinking their own Kool-Aid and taking their own narrative, and they refuse to see the actual facts. Uh, I think Justice Gorsuch's majority opinion was key on that in response and said, hey, why don't you actually look at the stipulated facts, the facts that Colorado agreed with, the facts that the court laid out, that Lori serves all people. What is shocking in this case is not the facts, but the fact that Colorado agreed that Lori does not discriminate, that she serves all people, yet was still trying to go after her and trying to compel her speech. That should should be shocking, I think, to all of us, that Colorado's legal theory would enable the government not just to compel Lori, but as I noted, to compel Americans to say almost anything they disagree with. with. Again, that goes to uh, the Muslim, the Jewish artist, uh, the LGBT web designer. It's bad news when the government has this power. Uh, And we are just so thankful for the U.S. Supreme Court standing up and saying the government doesn't have this power, and Colorado is wrong to threaten to enforce its law against Lori.
2: Jonathan Scruggs, Alliance Defending Freedom, thanks for your time and your advocacy on behalf of the First Amendment. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Coming up next, author and social critic Oz Guinness will join me for a discussion of the state of American freedom. You don't want to miss it. Coming right up next on Washington Watch.
1: It begins here, and here, and here, every day. Before you stand, you need solid ground. Standing in a culture that wants you to surrender the truth won't work unless you have a firm foundation. At Family Research Council, we have that firm foundation and you can find us standing. We stand for the value of all human life, We stand for the right of families to flourish. And every day we stand for your freedom to believe and to live out those beliefs both at home and abroad. We work with government officials, educating them on the issues from a biblical worldview. And when necessary, we hold them accountable. We equip Christians across America to be informed and to take action in their communities. With our daily radio program, television appearances, and vast online presence, we reach people where they are. We envision an America where all human life is valued, families flourish, and religious liberty thrives. And That won't be realized if we're not standing. Stand for faith. Stand for family. Stand for freedom. Stand with us at FRC. I'm often asked by people, Tony, how do you stay encouraged? How do you deal with all of the stuff in Washington DC, the negative policies that are attacking our faith, our family, and our freedoms? Well, you want me to let you in on the secret? It's called the Word of God. And that is why the Family Research Council embarked on Stand on the Word, a two-year journey through the Bible. It's a chronological Bible reading plan with just 10 to 15 minutes a day. In two years, you will have covered the entire Bible. And to go along with this, Monday through Friday, I do a morning devotional that goes along with the reading of the day. It's all designed to encourage you on this journey because the Word of God, as the psalmist said, in my affliction, here's my comfort your Word gives me life." That is our source of strength. To find out more, go to TonyPerkins.com or FRC.org slash Bible. And I invite you to join me every morning for our Stand on the Word Bible devotion. This fall, believers from across America will gather in our nation's capital. We'll hear from government leaders, policy experts, and leading Christian voices, learning how we can engage in government at every level, from local school boards to state legislatures, to Congress and even the White House to win back the soul of our nation. Join with us for the Pray Vote Stand Summit, Believe and Engage, September 15th through 17th. Register now at PrayVoteStand.org.
3: Welcome back to
2: Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. In recent years, Christians have seen an accelerated assault on not just our core beliefs, but on our very foundation as a country, and now is the time to build up that foundation. We hope you'll join us September 15th through the 17th in Washington, D.C. for our Pray, Vote, Stand Summit, a national gathering of spiritually active, governance-engaged conservatives, SAGE-CONS. I'll also be participating on a Friday evening mixer for college and high school students where you can ask anything that's been bugging you. Be happy to do that Look forward to seeing you and your the young people in your life there with us. Registration is open for that event. Visit PrayVoteStand.org for details and to register. Now, yesterday's July 4th festivities provided an opportunity to celebrate those who fought for our nation's independence, as well as honor those who sacrificed to protect those freedoms. But even amid the fireworks and parades, many on the left now cringe at the word patriot and the cause of patriotism. As Christians, we serve the kingdom of God, but we also are citizens of a country, and we're blessed to live in one founded on principles of freedom. What effect could a cynical and dismissive attitude toward American ideals mean for the future of our nation? Joining me now to discuss this is author and social critic Oz Guinness. He's a senior fellow at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics and the author of many books, including The Zero Hour, and most recently, The Signals of Transcendence, published earlier this year. Oz, welcome back to Washington
6: Watch. Thank you. A real pleasure to be with you again. So glad to
2: have you. Now, I want to continue, if I may, for a moment, the conversation from our last segment. We were talking about the 303 Creative Case, and there's this tension in the United States uh, between the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, and non-discrimination laws. Um, But that also begs the question about what freedom really is, and understanding what freedom is and what freedom isn't. Why do you think that's important in that debate?
6: It's important because the heart of America is freedom. You know, St. Augustine says, to understand a nation, you see what it loves supremely. And there's no question What America loves supremely is freedom. And yet there's so much confusion today what it is, and there's so much assault on what the founders understood it to be. So we're at a very significant moment.
2: Now this is this this issue is cutting across partisan lines in many cases. David Brooks, he's a columnist for the New York Times. He holds himself out as a conservative. He had this to say about the conflict between freedom of expression and non discrimination laws. Let's play clip eight.
6: In this case, you had the right for artistic expression against non discrimination, and it was a contest between those two. And the court chose free expression. That strikes me just as someone who lives in American society as doing great harm to American society.
2: Os Guinness, do you think it's a problem if the court values freedom of expression above non-discrimination laws?
6: No, I think freedom of religion and conscience, freedom of speech and expression, and freedom of association and assembly, they are like light and air and water to the human body the foundational freedoms without which we're in trouble. And while David's a good friend, I must say I disagree with him on that, because in this case, those on the left were targeting the graphic designer. So it was a targeted attack on freedom of speech, and that was very dangerous. I agreed thoroughly with the Supreme Court coming down on the right side.
2: Now, in your book, you note that there are faulty and specious views of freedom. If you would, tell us a bit more about that and how that illuminates these debates that we're having.
6: Well, the simplest one is the one that many, many people say freedom is not license, it's liberty. Freedom is the capacity to do what you ought to do, not the permission to do what you like. And the wrong sort of freedom always undermines freedom, which is the main reason why freedom is actually the greatest enemy of freedom, because it's pursued in the wrong way. But I would say something deeper, Joseph. We have all these challenges, protests, scandals, outrageous today. And so many people are responding in what I call whack-a-mole, a whack-a-mole style, a ban here and a protest there and a boycott there, Whatever. What we miss is an Abraham Lincoln, because what he did was define reality. America in the 1850s cannot stay half slave, half free. No more can America today stay half the child of the American Revolution, which was largely biblical, and half the child of the heirs of the French Revolution, which was anti-biblical. And we need a leader who'll spell out the differences between the two revolutions and not just all the specific things that turn up day after day after day. We need a Lincoln-like leader.
3: Do you
2: believe that the American public wants leadership that will tell them that freedom is not the freedom to do what you like, but the freedom to do what you ought? Are we as a public prepared for that message?
6: That, of course, is the... $64,000 question. If you have leadership, will people respond well? I at the moment think they will. But we're at that moment rather like Moses. I put before you a blessing and a curse, life and death. Choose life. Or Joshua or Elijah. Now we may be closer to Elijah. Will we follow Yahweh, the Lord God, or Baal? And of course, he was a strong minority. I don't know where the whole of the public is, but I think we need such a challenge to the choice between the revolutions.
2: You know, I think it's an interesting contrast that now the 4th of July follows immediately Pride Month. So we have a day where we're celebrating the 4th of July after 30 days of celebrating pride, which I would say you could accurately describe as the celebration of the idea that I can do whatever I want. Do you think these different views of freedom should inform the way we look at something like June, which for many has been branded as Pride Month?
6: I think it was very significant that you added the White House the pride flag central and the stars and stripes smaller on either side, and that was a symbol of how the way that LGBTQ resolution has overtaken so much of the American Revolution at point after point. The inroads, I call it the red wave, the rainbow wave, and the black wave. These are expressly against the Jewish and Christian faiths, but they're also deeply against the West. So we're at a very significant moment.
2: As Guinness, in your book *The Zero Hour*, you have a very provocatively titled chapter: "Freedom is the greatest enemy of freedom." Now, is that because, and I and I say this to my kids often when I'm trying to like get them to exercise some self control, the idea that if you cannot control yourself, someone else is going to be required to control you. Is that what we're experiencing culturally, where a, a country that f- filled with people who cannot control themselves? necessarily must be controlled by someone else, and and that will be uh,
6: most unpleasant? Well, that's the beginning of it, Joseph. You're right. So people quote Abraham Lincoln, government of the people, by the people, for the people. They forget he's quoting Theodore Parker in the 19th century, who was quoting, of all people, John Wycliffe in the 13th century. And Wycliffe is saying, when we put the Bible in the hands of ordinary people, then you have a chance of government of the people, by the people, for the people, because the Bible will be the foundation for self-government and self-rule. And without that, freedom will be impossible. We've talked a bit here about the debate
2: over what freedom actually is. There's another word that seems to be uh, misunderstood where people are operating from different definitions and that word is patriot. And of course, following the 4th of July, a lot of people feel patriotic, describe themselves as patriots. But in many circles in America today, that term isn't necessarily uh, seen as, as something you want to be. It's seen as something extremist and alarmist and right wing. How should we think about this idea of patriotism from a biblical perspective?
6: Remember that the battle between the revolutions is a battle for words and language, as well as reality. But the idea that the patriot, someone who loves their country, it doesn't mean right or wrong, loves their country, is negative today is part of the whole problem. And you have in Christian circles, certain scholars who say that Any love of one's country is, quote, Christian nationalism. Now, patriotism is good. Every human being needs a place. We need a place for belonging. So patriotism is good. Nationalism as an idolatry can be very dangerous. So we should be patriots, but not uncritical, but never nationalists in the sense of idolizing our country right or wrong. Now, the reason that's dangerous today is because we have the globalists, and they, in terms of transnationalism, are attacking patriotism and nationalism together. So we've got to defend these things, but we've got to clear up the meaning of the words.
2: Yeah, I think that is an important exercise. So how would you uh, distinguish between patriotism love of country which can be healthy it's the way we love our home because that's where our family lives and nationalism which you think can be dangerous where's the line between those things
6: well i would follow in this case george orwell who is an atheist but he points out patriotism is good you love the place you're a part of nationalism my country right or wrong whatever can be very very dangerous now of course People attack nationalism because of, say, Hitler, National Socialism. But Hitler's problem was nation that wanted to become an empire. So it wasn't actually the nationalism that was wrong. It was the imperialism in the nationalism. And so we've got to really be careful what we mean. But patriotism, absolutely. Love your country. Pray for your country. I'm not American, but I'm a great admirer of this country at its best, and would stand every day for its views of freedom as being the highest, richest, deepest the world has seen so far. Now, of course, they're in trouble today, and they need to be reformed and renewed.
2: Oz, you mentioned there that you're not American. You are a British born in China. Do you think you see America differently than those of us who
6: were born here and have always lived here? Well, it certainly helps to be born abroad. So anyone who comes from, say, the Eastern Europe, who's lived under communism, never naive about what we're seeing here. I grew up, I saw as a boy the Chinese Revolution. I will never be naive about Marxism. many Americans, you know, Roger Kipling put it, what knows he of England who only England knows? In other words, you see things freshly when you see them as an outsider, and that's certainly true for those of us who come from other parts of the world. So I'm an admirer of this country, but not uncritical. There are things that need to be put right. But, of course, that's at the heart of the Constitution itself.
2: Now, Oz, I don't know if you follow women's professional basketball at all, but you probably know the story of Brittany Griner and her experience in Russia. And, and I think it's it's a, relevant to the point you were just making, where she had a position that she wasn't even going to be on the court during the playing of the national anthem. And that was her position for a while. She went to Russia, experienced the Russian uh, judicial system, and I'll put that in quotes, spent 10 months in a Russian prison, was fortunately released, comes back to America, and now she uh, finds REASON TO STAND AND CELEBRATE AND HONOR AMERICA BECAUSE I THINK SHE GOT SOME some CONTEXT. YOU describe THE CONTEXT YOU HAVE AS BEING BORN IN CHINA AND YOUR EXPERIENCE WITH MARXISM. DO YOU THINK THAT'S WHAT AMERICA NEEDS IS JUST SOME CONTEXT TO APPRECIATE WHAT WE HAVE?
6: WELL, I WOULDN'T WISH AN EXPERIENCE OF COMMUNISM OR MARXISM OR RUSSIAN TOTALITARIANISM right. ON ANYONE. BUT THAT SAID, WE NEED HISTORY AND WE NEED TRAVEL TO GIVE PEOPLE A PERSPECTIVE ON WHERE WE ARE TODAY. And too many Americans just don't have any yeah. sense of history and hardly have any sense of the world to look back on this country. If you compare it with other countries, you come back incredibly grateful.
2: Yeah. Os Guinness, we're about to run out of time here, uh, but one of your more recent books is called Zero Hour And Ecclesiastes uh, encourages us us to remember that there is a time for everything, and to everything there is a season. What time is it in America now, do you think?
6: Well, I think it's very late in the evening in terms of the inroads of the neo-Marxism, cultural Marxism, wokeism. And so we're facing a time to choose. And I said, we can't just tackle it like whack-a-mole. A boycott here or a ban there. No, we need leadership that will put the big choice between the revolutions. We're rather like Paul's letter to the Galatians. Who's bewitched you? You came to faith in one gospel, and now you're following a different gospel, an alternative gospel. America is in danger of following an alternative revolution. And it's a revolution of the left, which has never succeeded. And its oppressions have never ended. And so this is a time to choose. And I'm so glad to be there at the Pray Vote Stand in September. Because now is the time for people to wake up and make that choice between the revolutions.
2: And thank you for uh, plugging that. I was just about to get there, but uh, you are a gift to the church and we are so thrilled that you are going to be part of the Pray Vote Stand Summit that's going to happen September 15th through the 17th in Washington, D.C. And we encourage people to be there for you and many of the other wonderful guests who will be there. But we thank you also for your time today and look forward to seeing you in September.
6: Thank you, Joseph. My privilege.
2: And friends, we thank you for being with us today. And before we go, I'd like to make you aware of another project that uh, I and FRC are part of. FRC has launched a new podcast called Outstanding, and I'm honored to be the host of that. So if you're interested in longer but casual conversations about the news of the day and the ideas that shape us, you can find that wherever you get your podcasts. That's outstanding. I'll be back with you tomorrow while Tony enjoys his time away. Until then, fear God and nothing else.
1: Call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234, that's
0: 1-866-372-7234.